The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Addressing the Burden of Prorigo Nodularis, Expert Insight on Disease Pathogenesis, and the Clinical Potential of Novel Therapeutic Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DTN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our session today, Addressing the Burden of Prigonodularis, where we'll have expert insights into disease pathogenesis and also the clinical potential of novel therapeutic options. I'm Dr. Sean Quatra, Associate Professor of Dermatology and Director of the Johns Hopkins Itch Center, and I'm joined by Dr. Elmeria. Uh, I'll start off. So prigonodularis is a distinct clinical disease characterized by the presence of chronic itch, a lasting greater than or equal to six weeks, and also by the presence of multiple hyperkeratotic raised firm nodules that are often distributed on the trunk and the extremities. We don't know the exact prevalence of prigonodularis, but there have been multiple studies by our group and others uh, showing that the incidence is projected to be under 200,000 cases. While this number has been increasing, this is also likely an underestimate because there is very poor disease awareness of prigonodularis. And as you can see, prigonodularis, while affecting uh, all age and ethnic groups, also is distinct in that it affects preferentially uh, middle-aged and also elderly adults. And this is unique as compared to other inflammatory skin diseases, such as atopic dermatitis or psoriasis. In addition, uh, black patients with prigonodularis are also disproportionately affected in the United States. And undoubtedly, social determinants of health, healthcare disparities, these all play a role. Bridging us to the pathogenesis of prigonodularis, this is a complex interplay between neural, immune, and epithelial mediators of skin inflammation and itch. As you can see from the diagram here, itch pathogenesis and transmission spans from the skin to the dorsal root ganglion and the spinal cord and also to the brain, and there's bidirectional signaling. You can see in the skin, there's a variety of itch mediators from itch-causing cytokines like IL-31, IL-13, and IL-4 but also members of other immune axes, such as IL-17 and IL-22. As you can see, there are many important cell types, so mast cells, eosinophils, and there's a variety of both vascular uh, mediators, neuromediators, and also mediators of inflammation. This will be summed up for you in a video about the pathogenesis of parigonodularis. Parigonodularis, or PN, is a distinct chronic neural and immune-mediated skin disease characterized by intense itch and nodular lesions. As one of the itchiest skin conditions, PN is characterized by the development of a pathological itch-scratch cycle and neuronal sensitization, leading to disease chronicity independent of the initial disease triggers. Histological examination of PN lesional skin demonstrates dense infiltrates of eosinophils, T-lymphocytes, and mast cells, which release a wide range of pro-inflammatory cytokines. Eosinophils accumulate in the dermis of PN lesions, releasing the neuropeptides nerve growth factor and substance P, and exacerbate neurogenic pathways. Eosinophil cationic protein and eosinophil-derived neurotoxin eosinophil protein X 
the granular pro-inflammatory components of eosinophil cells are also upregulated in the upper dermis of PN lesions. Interleukin-4 and vasoactive intestinal polypeptide are additional eosinophilic contributors of PN pathogenesis. These pro-inflammatory and pro-fibrogenic cytokines induce pruritus and erythema of the lesions. T-lymphocytes play an important role in pathogenesis through the release of interleukin-31 at the lesion sites. Increased IL-31 expression is strongly associated with itch and a wide range of pruritic skin diseases, with the relative highest expression found in the lesional skin of PN patients. Along with eosinophils and T-lymphocytes, mast cells also help maintain the inflammatory response in PN, releasing histamine, prostaglandins, and other itch-mediating substances. Increased expression of the neuropeptide substance P and calcitonin gene-related peptide, neurotrophins such as nerve growth factor and endothelin support the notion of dysregulated neuroimmune epithelial crosstalk, also explaining the neuronal and epidermal hyperplasia of skin in patients with PN. In summary, though the exact pathogenesis of PN is unclear, it appears that increased activity of type 2 immune cells and cytokines, along with certain other immune cells and inflammatory mediators, may contribute to signs and symptoms of PN through interactions with neurons and other dermal and epidermal resident cells. In line with a central role of Th2 cytokines, therapies targeting IL-4, IL-13, and IL-31 are in development and have demonstrated short and long-term efficacy in treating paragonodularis, offering new hope for improved patient care. So zooming in on a nodule, you can see here that paragonodularis is characterized by orthokeratosis and hyperkeratosis. So that's a dead layer of the stratum corneum that's above. Following below that, you can see epidermal acanthosis, which is represented by this arrow. That's lengthening of the epidermis. And then in the dermis, you can appreciate here that there's a variety of mediators. There's T lymphocytes, increased macrophages and fibroblasts. As you can also see, there's greater blood vessels as well. And there's also dysregulation of neural innervation. So in the dermis, we have increased branching of several of these nerves. And actually in the epidermis, there seems to be a slight dropout in terms of the number of nerves crossing into the epidermis. The core symptoms of paragonodularis are the presence of firm nodular lesions, itch lasting greater than six weeks, and signs of repetitive scratching, picking, or rubbing. A few other additional features that we seem to see in many paragonodularis patients are nodules that are symmetrically distributed. Usually areas that are not affected or rarely affected are the face, the palms, the soles, the scalp, and the genitals. And this uh, sensation of itch can also be accompanied by other features of this nerve transmission, such as burning, pain, stinging, and other types of sensations. Now let's hear from actually one of my patients, Candice, and she'll talk about her journey with prygonodularis and specifically her experience with the intractable itch of prygonodularis. The itching is widespread. The itching is widespread um, because I, this obviously must come with dry skin. It, you know, it must still be in the 
eczema psoriasis family. So it, so my skin's constantly dry. You know, I could bathe in oil and I'd be dry in an hour or so. But um, so my skin is constantly dry. I'm constantly oiling it. So I always have a little bit of oily feeling to me sometimes. So yeah, it's it's constantly dry. So the itch is widespread. I, I kind of say it's, and I don't know if this, the, it's like sometimes I always feel like dust is being dropped on me at any time. Sometimes I just feel like, oh, there's dust on me. And, you know, it's an itch, but it just always feels like something's being dropped on me little by little. But to have a diagnosis of pregonagularis, you need itch and you also need nodules. As you can see from this figure that's been illustrated here, many of these nodules are raised and there's also overlying excoriation, signs of secondary scratching, and these nodules can be very disfiguring and also lead to psychosocial distress among patients and limit social activities. Let's now hear Candace's journey and experience specifically with the presence of these nodules. Well, the nodule is a dark, hard spot or hardened spot. And yes, if you scratch them, they're going to bleed. They will bleed. They will. They might pus up. Um, I don't know if Dr. Quattro is going to show any of the pictures because we did take pictures. Um, so yeah, they will bleed. They will spot up. Um, I think we've counted up to... 20 on each arm sometimes. And again, we only count the ones that are hard, that have scarred over, I guess you would say. So um, if they do ever soften up, and I think we were successful in getting them softened uh, with one dermatologist, some sort of cortisone shot that he would actually do into the nodule and you would get it to soften up. But because of the scarring, the scarring seemed to stay, the, the, the dark scar because I was actually sent to a dermatologist, a young fella. And I kept, you know, I was wondering, am I imagining this? Because he kept saying, I can't lighten your skin. I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. I said, do you see these spots or am I imagining them? <laughs> I was like, I just want to lighten the spots, not my skin. I like my skin, just the spots. And I was thinking, does he not see these or, or am I seeing them more than anybody else sees them? But no, they're quite visible. <laughs> These nodules in Prygonodularis can have great heterogeneity. As you can see from all of these excellent pictures, the nodules have variable thickness, fibrosis, excoriation, scaling, and underlying erythema or redness. As you can see also in skin of color populations, there can also be accompanying dispigmentation and these lesions can vary from less than 10 or 20 to literally hundreds of these nodules. Prygonodularis is characterized by an intractable itch scratch cycle. As you can see in this diagram, paritis or intense itch causes patients oftentimes to have significant sleep disturbance, which also can lead to depression, anxiety, and finally, chronic itch leads to even greater disturbance in the appearance of these nodules that are in the skin, which can lead to psychosocial disturbances where patient oftentimes feels embarrassed and shamed about these characteristic PN nodules and oftentimes avoid social interactions. Let's hear back from Candace about the impact that prygonodularis has on her quality of life. Well, yeah, I definitely, I do not wear short sleeves. I don't wear tank tops. I, I don't wear halters. Um, 
I am usually in the summertime I'll have on leggings. You know, I'm not going to be in shorts or mini skirts or anything like that because it's also on my legs. So, and that's just been a forever thing. So I've gotten used to it. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where you don't miss what you never had. So yes, yeah. Sometimes it is warm and I'm like, oh, I wish I could wear shorts or tank top, but then my skin would burn. And when the sun hits my skin, it kind of burns it anyway because it's so sensitive and I've probably put so many chemicals on it. So that um, I am usually in maybe a three quarter sleeve top, right? Or a um, mid skirt. My skirts usually are knee length or below. So I'm not a person who's wearing a lot of short stuff <laughs> or summery stuff. So, and that's terrible because I hate winter, but I'm, I'm never usually into anything too summery. Oh, you know, I have a, usually a shawl or something on. If I do have on a sleeveless dress, I'll usually have on a pashmina or some sort of shrug or something like that. So yeah, I hate it. I don't like it. No, I, I hate it. I, I'd like to be out there. I, I mean, my friends will tell you, I've always said, if I had clear skin, I'd be naked every day. <laughs> As you can see, paragonagularis has very significant burden of disease with major impacts on quality of life sleep deprivation, missed work and school, also emotional impacts and social isolation. There are also several chronic diseases that are associated with paragonagularis, such as chronic kidney disease, diabetes, heart failure, chronic hepatitis, HIV, and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. That's just a few. Overall, this entire web of effect on the quality of life leads to patients having a disruption in their quality of life similar to patients with stroke, heart failure, or diabetes. And actually, this is from a study that our group did, and we found that paragonagularis patients have an average effect of about six and a half quality adjusted life years that are lost because of their disease, where one life year equals one perfectly healthy year of life. And this is also associated with a very significant economic burden. The societal lifetime burden among paragonagularis patients in the United States is estimated to be 38.8 billion and is very significant for each of our individuals. Finally, for paragonagularis patients, it's important to have a good differential diagnosis and to understand differences in nomenclature. So Curley's disease is another name for perforating lesions, which has a similar phenotype to paragonagularis. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Curley's disease is paragonagularis that's just associated with uh, chronic kidney disease. Atopic dermatitis, about 10 to 20% of paragonagularis patients may have concomitant atopic dermatitis. And you note this by the presence of eczematous lesions. This is much more common in black PN patients. Mimickers include hypertrophic lichen planus, uh, autoimmune blistering diseases such as bullous pemphigoid, lichen simplex chronicus, also excoriation disorder, which is sometimes different from pregonagularis in that they don't have raised nodules. Those lesions are shallow and ulcers, and oftentimes patients don't have the same intense itch. Instead, they may have the signs of pressure. And then finally, multiple keratoacanthomas can oftentimes be confused for paragonagularis, also arthropod bites and scabies. In terms of workup, when you're assessing a paragonagularis patient, 
the first thing you would like to characterize is the number of lesions. Are there just a few? Are there hundreds? Are they firm? What is the patient's itch intensity? In my experience, nodularis patients usually have the greatest degree of itch intensity, but you want to clarify that. In addition, you want to see what are the impacts on patient quality of life, sleep disturbance, anxiety, and depression. And oftentimes these patients will also need to be co-managed with other providers who are experts and can provide behavioral and emotional support for related anxiety or depression. All patients should get a complete blood count with differential, liver function tests, and renal function tests. We know that liver disease and renal disease can oftentimes coexist with pariginodularis. A complete blood count is important to look at the hematologic dysgrasias that may be present. Also, blood eosinophils uh, tend to be a marker of uh, TH2 axis polarization, so that's a helpful tool at the bedside. Other things that uh, can be ordered, um, and but you can use your judgment for, are thyroid function tests, diabetes, and also HIV uh, and hepatitis serologies. Malignancy can be associated with parigonagularis, in particular if patients have had paritis for less than a year. Uh, the highest odds are probably around three months, and then in a year they're still elevated. But if a patients have disease for five to 10 years, then they have more of a regular population level uh, risk for malignancy. From this diagram, you can see specifically non-Hodgkin's lymphoma seems to have uh, a higher incidence in parigonagularis patients, but this can also manifest in other organs. So patients should be up to date with age-appropriate malignancy screening. Now let's hear Candice's journey with parigonagularis and her treatment experiences. This will be a great segue into Dr. Elmeria's presentation on treatments. After I think about two or three videos, uh, we went in, uh, went in and met Dr. Quatra and his research staff. And we started on a, a research study. We've started on one. We've done a second one and we'll possibly start a third. Dell, they both stopped the itch. That That is fantastic to have the itch stop to, because um, I braid my hair a lot or I wear my hair out. And um, to not be scratching my head like crazy is just, Fantastic. So now that we've heard from Dr. Quatra about parigonodularis pathogenesis and epidemiology, and from Candace, our patient with parigonodularis and her experience with this disorder, I'd like to talk about current treatments and novel therapeutics and development for parigonodularis. I'm Serena Almeria. I'm director of the MGH Itch and Neurocutaneous Disorders Clinic at Massachusetts General Hospital, and I'm an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. So the goals of treatment with parigonodularis are to primarily reduce paritis or other sensory disturbances, including burning, tingling, prickling, or associated pain. The hope is to interrupt the itch scratch cycle that leads to the development and exacerbation of nodules and to heal the PN nodules themselves completely. In 2021, an expert panel of dermatologists who focus on itch and parigonodularis met to provide diagnostic and treatment suggestions for patients with parigonodularis. We developed a four-tier system that recognizes that parigonodularis has both neural and immunologic components to the etiology of disease. And when managing patients, 
with parigonodularis, it is often important to recognize and target both the neural and immune aspects. In this four-tier system, we begin at the bottom of the ladder with topical therapies, including neural treatments like topical ketamine, amitriptyline, lidocaine, or capsaicin, as well as immunologic therapies, including topical steroids and non-steroidal topicals. As we progress up the ladder, you will see systemic agents that will target either the neural or the immune axis. We'll walk through these a bit more in subsequent slides. One important thing to note is that for any given individual, you may enter this ladder at any point, at any tier, depending on the severity of their disease. And it is also important to recognize that you may need to choose an agent from both or multiple agents from both the neural targeting side as well as the immunologic targeting side. It is also important to stress that at this point in time, there are currently no therapies approved by the US Food and Drug Administration specifically for parigonodularis. When we talk about mainly topical therapies, we'll start with neural targeting therapies, and these include capsaicin, which must be applied multiple times a day, or topical ketamine, amitriptyline, lean, and lidocaine, some of which may need to be compounded. Now, these have been reported in cohort studies as well as case series, and many of us on the expert panel have used these. However, these types of agents are used best for small numbers of lesions or localized disease. Similarly, with topical therapies, there have been many reports, mostly case reports or cohort studies, a few individual randomized controlled trials that have looked at topical agents, including topical uh, corticosteroids, intralesional corticosteroids, calcineurin inhibitors, calcipatriol, as well as uh, cryotherapy for parigonodularis. Again, many of these may be helpful either for the individual uh, lesions or just localized groups of nodules. Once somebody has more expansive disease, these tend to be very limited in their efficacy and applicability. When an individual presents with parigonodularis with more widespread disease, we need to begin to think about widespread uh, therapy or systemic therapies. Phototherapy, both ultraviolet B radiation as well as ultraviolet A or PUVA have been used to in the treatment of parigonodularis. These have been evaluated uh, and reported both in, in uh, case series as well as individual uh, randomized controlled trials and have shown benefit with noted concern for potential for burning or other increase in the risk of skin cancer for patients. However, many patients do feel comfortable with this and it is a reasonable widespread therapy to use. When we have patients who have severe disturbance in their sleep, in with widespread itch and very widespread disease, if the nodules, we begin to think about introducing neural therapies as well. And the neural systemic therapies that this expert panel felt most comfortable with included gabapentin or pregabalin, so gabapentinoids, 
SSRIs or SNRIs, such as paroxetine or duloxetine, as well as tricyclic antidepressants, amitriptyline and nortriptyline. There was interest initially in neurokinin receptor antagonists, uh, serlopitant and aprepitant. However, these failed to uh, demonstrate consistent therapeutic benefit in randomized controlled trials. Systemic immunologic therapy has been used by many within the field of dermatology to help manage prigonodularis. The most commonly reported and used also by the expert panel included methotrexate ranging from 7.5 all the way through 25 milligrams weekly, as well as cyclosporin, typically in the range of two to five milligrams per kilogram per day. These have all been reported in case series or in small cohort studies. However, the expert panel did feel that in the given individual, these may be very helpful for the management of parigonodularis. Some systemic agents that are less well-established, uh, either through less extensive data or also through less common use and really a lower tolerability included naltrexone, which is a mu opioid antagonist. It's been reported in case series as well as cohort studies uh, that have shown some benefit. Intranasal butorphanol, which is a kappa opioid agonist, that also has been used to be helpful in chronic itch as well as parigonodularis. However, often has some uh, notable side effects for uh, including nausea, uh, dizziness, and concerns even for addictive potential. Thalidomide has been used for many decades in the management of chronic itch as well as uh, prigonodularis and has shown variable rates of success ranging even up to 60 to 70% of patients responding, however, is limited by tolerability and the concern for peripheral neuropathy as well as teratogenicity. Next, we turn to other systemic immunologic therapies that either are less well-established or have potential side effects. Dupilumab, an anti-IL-4 monoclonal antibody, which reduces Th2 immunologic drive, has been shown and reported thus far in case series and various case control studies to improve parigonodularis. It is now also has just completed phase three trials, and we'll discuss those in a moment. Nemalizumab, which is an anti-IL-31 monoclonal antibody, also is in development for parigonodularis. And azathioprine, similar to methotrexate and cyclosporin, has been reported to uh, improve parigonodularis, however, is often limited by nausea and GI tolerability. Finally, in tier four, there are multiple therapies that have been reported to be useful in parigonodularis, but currently lack extensive and substantive data. These include neural targeting drugs such as cannabinoids, whether THC or cannabidiol uh, have been reported to help be helpful in reducing the itch and uh, sensory symptoms related to parigonodularis. And various immunologic therapies, mycophenolate mofetil has been used similar to azathioprine, methotrexate, and cyclosporin. 
JAK inhibitors have been reported to be helpful uh, and are also some in development for pyrigonodularis, as well as anti-IL-31 oncostatin M receptor antibodies. So emerging therapies for pyrigonodularis that are now in late stage clinical development include, as I discussed before, dupilumab, the IL-4 receptor alpha antagonist, and the nemalizumab, an IL-31 antagonist, uh, arbocitinib and other JAK inhibitors, vexorelumab, which is an oncostatin M receptor inhibitor, as well as nalbifene, which is an op a synthetic opioid uh, mu uh, and mu antagonist and kappa agonist. All of these are now in late stage development, either in phase two or three for pyrigonodularis. In the prime study, dupilumab was studied for pyrigonodularis. This was a phase three uh, randomized double blind placebo controlled trial that evaluated the efficacy and safety of dupilumab in 151 adult patients with pyrigonodularis that were either inadequately controlled on topical steroids or topical therapies, uh, or in whom those therapies were not advisable. It was a 24-week treatment period during which patients received dupilumab or placebo every two weeks and um, topical therapy. So low and medium dose topical steroids or calcineurin inhibitors were continued if patient had already been treating with them prior to randomization. In this study, more than three times as many dupilumab patients experienced a clinically meaningful reduction in itch from their baseline. So 60% of dupilumab patients showed improvement and 18% of placebo patients showed improvement with a reduction in peak pruritus um, of at least four points. Nearly three times as many patients on dupilumab also had uh, improvement in their IGA scores or investigator global assessment scores. So 48% of dupilumab patients compared to 18% of placebo patients. And along with this improvement in the primary endpoints, patients on dupilumab experience significantly greater improvement in measures of overall health-related quality of life, in skin pain, and in their symptoms of anxiety and depression. In the PRIME2 trial, this was a randomized phase three double-blind placebo-controlled trial uh, that also looked at efficacy and safety with the same design as the PRIME trial. Over this 24-week period, patients received dupilumab or placebo every two weeks and were allowed to continue topical therapies. Here in this patient population, there were, uh, the average age was 49 years and it represented about 64% um, women, 33% were Asian, 13% Latino or Hispanic, and 5% were black patients with pyrigonodularis. 46% of these patients had at least one coexisting uh, type two inflammatory disease. So leaning towards an atopic diathesis. And about 24% of these patients had already been treated with systemic immunosuppressive therapy and 11% had been treated with antidepressants. In the PRIME2 trial, they found that 37% of dupilumab patients had a clinically meaningful reduction in itch compared to baseline. Um, and that was compared to 22% of placebo patients at week 12, which was the primary endpoint. At week 24, nearly three times as many patients 
had improvement in their itch from baseline, 58% in the dupilumab group compared to 20% in patients treated with placebo. So similar to what we saw in prime one. Again, patients also had an improvement in their investigator global assessment, achieving now clear or almost clear about 45% in the dupilumab group versus 16 in the placebo group. Along with these improvements in primary endpoints, patients reported improved health-related quality of life, reduction in skin pain, and improvement in anxiety and depression. The rate of adverse events was similar between dupilumab and the placebo groups, and were similar to what we have already experienced with dupilumab in patients who are treated for atopic dermatitis. In the phase two trials for nemalizumab for pyrigonodularis, patients with moderate to severe pyrigonodularis were treated with the anti-IL-31 antibody nemalizumab at week zero, four, and eight, and then were followed out through week 18. In the treatment group, nemalizumab resulted in a, an improvement of about 50 to 60% reduction in the weekly peak paritis score based on a numerical rating scale compared to about 20 to 30% in patients who are treated with placebo. It is important to note that this reduction was relatively rapid seen within the first week and it persisted even beyond the treatment period as far out as 10 weeks, although longer studies will be required to know if this will be uh, a viable long-term solution for pyrigonodularis. In conclusion, pyrigonodularis is a condition with both neural and immunologic etiologies. Patients do not always respond to initial lines of therapy, and that is pushing the field forward to develop new agents and test these agents, existing agents for pyrigonodularis management. It is important to understand that patients suffer in a variety of ways from their severity uh, of their illness, including lack of sleep, embarrassment, in addition to the symptoms of itch and sensory disturbance every day. It is important that we think about combining how we target the neural aspects as well as the immunologic aspects. And we look forward to there soon being FDA approved agents that we can use in this challenging population. Thank you for being here with us today. So Dr. Quatra, do you screen for any systemic disorders in patients with pyrigonodularis like end-stage renal disease or ketosis? That's a great question. So all of the epidemiologic studies performed to date indicate that pyrigonodularis patients are more likely than average patients or also patients with other inflammatory skin diseases such as psoriasis or atopic dermatitis to have chronic kidney disease, hepatitis, even HIV. And so in my clinics, uh, we all oftentimes will do a complete blood count with differential and then we also specifically look at renal function and liver function. And depending on risk factors are uh, very likely to also perform a hepatitis panel and HIV. These are things you just don't want to miss at baseline. And they're important to make sure that you're continually examining. What's also interesting is 
recent evidence is emerging that patients with paragonagularis also have increased systemic inflammation in their blood. Uh, our lab found increased gamma delta T cells and IL-22, which are connected to the development of many of these conditions, such as diabetes and chronic kidney disease and uh, heart uh, cardiovascular issues. So it's also important to realize that there's a price of not treating patients with prognosis that systemic inflammation can lead to the emergence or instance of novel comorbidities. So that's why it's important to screen at baseline. It's important to screen throughout. And it's also important to treat aggressively to reduce patients itch so they don't develop other disorders. So Dr. Elmeria, uh, we have had several questions here about alternative agents for itch, specifically agents that have neuropathic effects. And I know you're an expert in this area. So wanted to specifically pick your mind on low-dose uh, naltrexone, cannabinoids, and any other neuropathic type agents you've used effectively in prognosis. Yes, this is an important modality that it often can benefit this population of patients. I want to highlight that there was an additional related question about how to bring up the topic of starting a patient on an antidepressant, for example, for itch, given the social stigma of mental health. And in general, I do like to use gabapentinoids as well as antidepressants, including SSRIs, SNRIs, and tricyclic antidepressants for the management of prigonodularis. Dr. Quattro mentioned cannabinoids. And whenever I bring these, this concept up, I usually have the approach of explaining to the patient that there are neural components to disease as we've discussed throughout this presentation and that it may not be a, a psychiatric indication, right? It's not, I explained to the patient that we do not think that they are depressed and therefore have their parigonodularis or feel anxious and then have their parigonodularis, but really the other way around that in the setting of having dysregulation of their neural or sensory signaling from their peripheral nervous system, that can lead to a state of you know, not sleeping well that may exacerbate some of those you know, kind of mental health aspects. But really the problem that we're focusing on by using these agents is targeting their peripheral nervous system and how their nerves communicate with each other. I express that it is the same neurotransmitter are often the same neurotransmitters that are being used in that type of communication. And by using drugs that have been used within the mental health field, we can then target these. So I will often start with a gabapentinoid at nighttime, whether it's gabapentin or pregabalin, this often achieves two goals. One in reducing some of their itch or sensory disturbance, but also in helping them sleep. And then I will layer or add from there. When I have patients who are amenable to trying, you know, specific antidepressants, again, tricyclic antidepressants, often at very low dose can be helpful for prigonodularis. And when they are receptive to trying cannabinoids, I will often suggest trying tinctures or sublingual uh, cannabinoids as opposed to inhalational uh, methods, but I will start with a very, very low dose 
of either CBD or THC. And I will suggest taking that as at nighttime as well. And then allowing with any of these agents, allowing patients to slowly titrate themselves up first to achieve tolerability. So they're not becoming too sedated or dizzy or having any GI discomfort or disturbance, and then uh, starting to target uh, efficacy. And that can really be a different point for any patient. Now, Dr. Quattro, you briefly mentioned naltrexone, and we also saw a handful of questions about that from our learners. I will say that naltrexone personally is not one of my favorite medications for itch or parigonodularis, in part because often the side effects, uh, the GI side effects, and again, um, just other you know, issues of eliciting occasionally worsening pain in patients who may have been treated with opioids or have other pain syndromes. I, I generally limit the use and I haven't found it to be as helpful. Occasionally, topically, it can be helpful, but I, I will steer away from naltrexone itself. So Dr. Quatra, we received several questions about whether you can treat parigonodularis permanently and whether there is a cure. What are your thoughts on that? This is a great question. And currently the answer is no. Parigonodularis is a chronic inflammatory skin disease. So similar to treatment of atopic dermatitis or psoriasis, treating this condition requires long-term maintenance therapy. Uh, in my experience uh, with several agents such as uh, methotrexate, patients are able to gather disease control. And then what we try to do is get the patients on the lowest possible dose that they need. Oftentimes I combine that with phototherapy to limit the amount of pharmacologic uh, drugs that they are getting. But oftentimes if we go too low, the nodules come back. What's also very interesting is when the nodules come back, they tend to re-arise in areas that have been previously affected. Now there's been amazing work by Dr. John Harris about uh, resident memory T-cells and vitiligo. I believe that's also uh, going on in prigonodularis as well. So more research is needed to better understand the underlying causes, immunology, and ways uh, to have longer lasting relief in these patients. And with that, we'll complete our session. Thank you very much for joining with us today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DTN 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.